0: Beginning of 2024, everyone's talking about AI, and a lot of the news out of reInvent in 2023, only a few months ago, was around AI. And some of that news was around the kind of custom silicon that powers some of these workloads, which I thought was very, very exciting. Um, But in addition to all the news that everybody gets to see, some of my Redmond colleagues and I got to take a tour of Annapurna Labs in Austin, Texas, recently. Annapurna was uh, kind of acquired by Amazon, I believe, in 2015. Um, and so we got to see some really cool things and, and geek out. And, and we now have questions about Custom Silicon that we did not have before. Um, so joining me today is Chaitan Kapoor from AWS, who's going to answer some of our, our very geeky questions about Custom Silicon. To start us off with, Chaitan, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what Custom Silicon has to do with it?
1: Um- yeah, absolutely. So, hi, everybody. Uh, Chaitin Kapoor here. Um, I'm with uh, AWS and the EC2 product management team, and I run our hardware accelerated business. Um, so, this uh, this basically entails uh, EC2 instances or compute platforms uh, that feature some sort of a hardware acceleration. Uh, could be GPUs, uh, could be custom ML chips that we're building. Uh, or other forms of accelerators. Right. Um, and, uh, I've been, I've been running this business for like coming up on eight years. Now it's been a while. That ra- that rounds and up to a decade yeah, in case you were wondering. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Especially in Amazon years. Yeah. Things go by uh, really, really fast. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been a fascinating space. Um, there's been a lot, uh, of coverage around, uh, the type, Types of models that companies are building, um, and the type of end-user capabilities that that we're experiencing on a daily basis these days. Uh, but you know, the, the the space that I operate in is all about providing the required compute infrastructure to support you know these customers building these type of models, right? So there's a lot that goes into you know providing infrastructure to support somebody building a foundational model, right? Um, and that's the space I, I mostly operate in. There are, there are other businesses that I also support, uh, specifically in the HPC and the graphics and gaming space. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, those type of applications also leverage accelerators for a lot of different workloads.
0: So you, it sounds like you are very busy because you have a lot of things uh, under, under your supervision or direction. Thank you again for taking the time to, to chat with me today. I'm going to jump right into questions because I have many of them. In fact, we have to we have to, narrow, we have I'll to do narrow it. down the list of yeah. questions that we would we would ask you, so this would not take two hours. Um, but you know, to start off with, one of the core themes that came up throughout our tour of Anandpanta Labs was spending engineering resources where it matters most, especially around build versus buy decisions. This theme was visible in multiple aspects, including the strategy of your hardware design and components used, and also the lab operations themselves. When it comes sure. to like custom silicon. Um, can you give us some context around the areas where AWS chooses to build uh, and how they are areas of differentiation for AWS? Um, or in other words, like how does this these build versus buy decisions kind of relate to specific outcomes in which AWS is investing?
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is a super interesting aspect of um, talking about how we how we build and deploy these products. Right. So. If you you look under the covers and take a look at an accelerator for training a large language model, as an example, right, Uh, a lot of the core function comes around uh, being able to do large matrix math operations really, really effectively. And that's where the heart of the chip lies, is being able to do lots and lots of matrix multiplications really, really quickly, right? Because... Essentially, uh, for for training or even inferencing of a large language model or deep learning model in general, that's one of the core compute functions you need. Right Now, when we start to look at a design, we're like, okay, what parts of the design we think we need to invent IP for and bring a lot of value for? A lot of this is going to be centered around the compute engine. It's going to be centered around... How the compute engine talks to the memory that's available, because it's not just about compute; it's about memory also. And, but there are a whole bunch of other things you need in a chip uh, to actually enable uh, to enable that chip to operate. Like, for example, power subsystems. For example, high-speed interfaces, right? Um, out-of-band communication mechanisms, and those are uh, those are some of the components that you know we can actually get some help from third parties and leverage their IP instead of reinventing, you know, high speed interfaces or, you know, PCIe controllers and things like that, right? So when it comes to like build versus buy, our our core focus is around, okay, what is the, the key capability that we need to build that is not available in the industry, right? And then how can we impact our time to market because you know all this craziness in the gen ai space you know everybody wants to get their next next application and model up and running quickly so there's a lot and a lot of pressure from a time to market angle right um, so if we can leverage an ip from a third party from a partner then great that's going to enable us to get to market quicker right and obviously the third aspect is cost right so we have to be mindful of like, okay, how much is going to cost us? Or what does that translate to the economics and benefit of the customer? Uh, and that's where all these uh, three things uh, have to balance out, right? It needs to be IP that we can uh, uniquely build and deliver value, uh, you know. And if there's ability for us to leverage third parties, great. Uh, but at the same time, we need to be mindful of what it. Costs us to build in terms of engineering time and effort, and obviously the cost of silicon itself. Right. So those are the kind of uh, vectors and, um, and and areas we need to kind of think through when it comes to the buy versus build decision for for elements uh, of a particular uh, silicon design.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think that the balance has to be tricky at times, especially when you're getting into the like the desire to make everything yep. as perfect as possible versus the the time versus in the cost the kind of factors as well. Yeah. Um, and I think so. Saying that from the position of, of say where where you are, um, and then being one of the people in the lab who's who's like trying to navigate the, these decisions as well, I think has to be be a little bit different. And I want to kind of talk about that those build by versus by decisions in the context of the lab. And before before we did our tour of perma Labs, it had been described to us as a startup like environment and. It, it also had been described as scrappy a number of times. And when you walk in, it does feel that way. It's, it's delightful. Um, yeah. And also it was evident in things like machine that tests cards running in part with raspberry Pis, um, But also in team members having to pick up all these different things like, Oh, now you have to go learn how to use sure. a soldering iron. If you don't before in a microscope and cabling or understanding the latest sweep of compute demands around AI and ML, how, how do you build a team that has this like scrappy ethos that fosters this building mentality and creativity while also ensuring that it's latest focused and selective and not kind of unnecessarily reinventing wheels?
1: Yeah. You know, we have internally we have a we have a saying that Amazon is the world's largest startup. Uh, you know, many parts of our business is true. In some cases, we're not, but uh, you know, the overall mental model, you know, just comes down uh from how we think about uh teams and ability for teams to control their own destiny right uh you might have heard us use the reference of two pizza teams Um, and for those who are not familiar it essentially represents a team that is small enough that if you had a happy hour you can get like two XL pizzas uh and you'll be able to kind of have that happy hour with just two two large pizzas, right? And so it essentially means that, you know, the team is about, you know, 10 to maybe 15 people, and they're super nimble. Uh, And at the same time, they have the ability to control their own destiny, right? So from an org structure perspective, when we think about how we set up teams, uh, we want to make sure that the teams have the ability to work on the things that directly translate to a positive impact in specific influence, mm-hmm. for a specific area that they're operating. There are some other cultures out there where you know teams have a whole bunch of dependencies on other teams, right? So like if you want to get a product done, you need support from X, Y, and Z teams and things like that. So fundamentally, there's a, there's a pretty uh, different culture at Amazon and it's even more pronounced in the Pruna team, right? So Anapurna. Is a startup within a startup kind of think about that right so so that's why we have we have small teams that are focused and uh and, and you talked briefly about this like we hire builders that are naturally uh multifaceted, right where you know if, if there's a person who is designing the hardware a person is also responsible for bringing it up like getting all the testing around it uh to make sure that you know it is running because The other perspective we have as amazon especially in annapurna is that if you're building it you should be testing it like it shouldn't be that there's another team that are responsible for testing and then you're going back and forth across those two teams and maybe you don't have a really clear understanding of how the product is supposed to work and there's some loss in translation and things like that so uh, organizationally there's a lot of emphasis um at amazon and annapurna to make sure That we have got the super nimble teams, and you mentioned a little bit about Raspberry Pi, that's a really good example where, you know, the team needs, uh, you know, a way, and, you know, this came about in in COVID especially, if they need a way to talk to pre-production silicon that is only available in the lab, ideally, you would just come in the lab and actually just work work with the silicon in person. But if you don't have that ability, where you know, again, think about COVID, where a lot of people couldn't come into the office or didn't want to come into the office, uh, you know, we empowered them to make, uh, you know, uh, decisions to have scrappy environments, but at the same time, you know, ensure that it's secure uh, and reliable in the way it's kind of set up, right? So in the case of Raspberry Pi, we actually use that to power some of our our supporting circuitry around the chip, um, and 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 have an interface to kind of talk to that chip, right? So. So that particular Raspberry Pi that you saw was set up in a controlled environment where it wasn't accessible as a as a device on the internet. Uh, you needed to have like restrictive access to have access to it, but at the same time, it was an off-the-shelf part and uh, that the team was able to kind of leverage um, and set up the set up the test bed in order to make progress on the chip validation. Right. yeah
0: and it's very cool and it, it, it the lab it does have the feel of a startup the two pizza team but with the the backing and the, the almost like you know like security and resources of the, to to a, yeah enterprise. which is exa- i think exactly Absolutely. what you want right yeah so shifting the gears a little bit to talk about kind of training and inference workloads and the chips that power them and maybe the different needs that, that these type of workloads have during our tour yeah we had the chance to see Tranium and inferentia chips. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference, of, you know, kind of between the workloads for which these chips are designed, and how and why are yeah. the infrastructure requirements for training workloads different from inference workloads? Because one thing I learned is that they are very different.
1: They are. They are. And yeah, they're they're, they're very different. And um, you know, a lot of the engineers uh, you know don't uh, have a true appreciation of what the differences are. Um, and, um, and generally speaking, if you look at training versus inference, training is a scale out workload. Uh, but what I mean by that is like for a deep learning model, and especially all these large language models, you're not training a model on a single chip. You're usually training it across hundreds, if not thousands of these chips, because you want to get the training job done as quickly as possible. Right and on inference on the other hand you want to make it super cost effective because if you're if you're going to be supporting millions of inferences on a per day or per minute or per second basis uh you need to make sure it's super optimal right so inference for the most part and it's changing actually in the market right now um is is a single chip or a single server uh type of workload you don't scale out a single inference job across hundreds of chips or thousands of chips, right? So, so because of that, uh, you have unique requirements at the chip level, at the server level, and also at the data center level across training and inference, right? So, so when it comes to training, uh, to look at specific details, uh, you need a lot of high high bandwidth memory. Mm -hmm. Um, You need a lot of chips that are interconnected using high-performance networking. And you need to have really, really fast storage because you need to feed data into this training compute cluster. Uh, otherwise, your expensive chip re- resources are going to be starved, right? Um, so, so there are differences at the chip level where you need you know, tons of compute, tons of memory kind of packed into a single chip. And then you need a lot of networking and storage to kind of uh, combine it all together to form a large, large clusters, right? very large clusters. And on the inferencing side, uh, for the most part, uh, you are you are going to be sensitive to performance because uh, you want your uh, interactive experience uh, to be super interactive and snappy, right? If you're, ta- if you're talking to a chatbot, you want your responses right away. You don't want to like say something into do a chatbot and wait like 10, 15 seconds for it to kind of respond, right? Um, so 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 customers end up optimizing for for latency and throughput and also cost, right? So uh, so inference used to be a single chip workload, right? So if if one customer is interacting with a chatbot that is typically used to run on a single chip and it was good enough for the experience, uh, but now with the LLMs and especially the the GPT three and four type models, where it, it is kind of scaling out, where you actually need multiple chips to host that model and to provide a uh, a compelling experience for the customers right so to kind of summarize it it's uh, it's um, the big difference is scale out versus scale up right uh, where again uh, for for training jobs you need uh, hundreds and thousands of accelerators that are tied together uh, and for inferencing it's typically uh, typically limited to a few few chips um, and then uh, but at the same time, it needs effective and uh, from a both from a performance and a cost standpoint.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And from for me and my colleagues, I think the visuals of, of seeing the different kind of board setups for for the you know, as like the yeah. trinium and the inferentiate chips was really impressive. Um, and I think what really struck us too is we we got to see, I think a trinium one and an Inferentia two chip and we got to and they look very similar, but. The boards they're on and the servers they're set up with varies so greatly. And and can you speak a little bit about that? I know you kind of touched on the different requirements um, for like my previous question, but can you tell me more about about why, you know, why these things look the same, but they're situated so differently?
1: Yeah. Uh, So that's a really good example, by the way, right? So on Tranium 1, um, the, the part is the chip is designed for, as you can imagine, for training, right? So... So we have to max out the compute performance uh, that is available on the chip, uh, and, and we have to make sure that within the server we have as many chips as we can pack in and interconnect those chips really, really tightly, right? So a tranium 1 server has 16 chips running at full power that are all interconnected with each other, right? So, so again, it's, it's optimized for training where each chip needs to be able to talk to the other chip, and we need to max out the performance. Right now, for inference, as I mentioned earlier, right, uh, inference is a super cost-sensitive workload, um, and usually it's uh, it's bound to a single single server. Right. So when we when we were designing uh, the brand new architecture, our, our second generation architecture, we were like, okay, we've got a single architecture, we got to support training. But we also at the same time, we want to look at supporting inference on leveraging the same architecture. Right. So on the inference side, we took the core silicon and we tweaked it where, you know, uh, you know, we get lower cost structure, uh, dialed down to compute performance a bit because that was really not uh, required for us to kind of max out for inferential two, uh, and also change uh, the interconnects for chips to chips. So right? instead of having like an all to all connection, uh, Inferential 2 as a server has uh, a ring that connects all the 12 accelerators that we have, right? So there were pretty fundamental differences at the at the board level uh, that allowed us to have multiple chips uh, come out from the same architecture to support training and also inference, right? So yeah, your observation was correct. The, the fundamental silicon is is very, very similar between the two. It leverage the same architecture. But they are packaged in a very very different format, optim- based on the you know, requirements of training versus inference.
0: And then, if if you don't mind speaking about this, um, so Trainium two announced it reinvent. Anything about and, and that chip itself? I think um, the the kind of benefits. Were kind of touted and, and shouted from the rooftops, but going beyond that, in terms of in terms of like the the kind of setup around it, anything about that we should we should know about?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's it's going to be super exciting uh, for our customers, and and we're really pumped about you know, what that chip is going to bring to the market. Uh, some of the high level things we mentioned when we announced that part was we expect we expect for it to be four times as performant as Trinity One, right? Uh, So that's pretty sizable. Uh, We're also going to set up really, really massive clusters of Trinium-2 chips, right? So, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, workloads needing hundreds to thousands. We're starting to see customers today that are running tens of thousands of these chips in a single cluster. And we expect that trend is going to continue, right? So we're planning on deploying Trinium-2 as part of massive clusters. and uh and that's going to be really exciting for you know some of the leading builders of foundational models right and uh, we're going to disclose more about premium 2 in the coming months uh, as we get closer to preview and eventual ga uh we'll share more uh, more details around um, how we expect to package it as an ec 2 instance and uh and the kind of clusters we expect to uh be able to kind of provide our customers to enable to train these next-generation foundational models.
0: Well, I, for one, will be on the lookout for that news as it as it rolls out, because I think, I, I do, I think we're, we're at a point where the stuff that is running um, the, the workloads that we need to do the things we want to do is, is becoming more and more important.
1: Yep.
0: Um, and it's kind of speaking on that, so Red Monk, we care about developers very much. Many of the software developers yep. we speak to are not overly conscious about hardware, and that may have to do more with the nature of their training, like what they're what they're taught to do and what, what they actually need to do their jobs, um, than anything else. But from your, your perspective, why should developers care about Silicon? Because like clearly, I do, we do. But why why should developers care about it?
1: Yeah. So there, uh, you know, there are multiple reasons, right? So if you're if you're in the um, AI ML space right mm-hmm. now, um, there's a lot of focus on time to market, uh, which is understandable. People want to uh tap into this new innovation in the market and try and uh, deliver meaning meaningful results and improvements to the businesses right we, t- we totally get that um the reason why paying attention to silicon and the underlying infrastructure uh is going to come down to uh come down to performance cost and ability for customers to kind of control their own destiny right what do i mean by that right So. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're building on GPUs today, as an example, right, um, uh, that's going to be great. That's going to allow you to kind of move quickly. But at some point, uh, the cost of training using the existing uh, methodologies is going to just skyrocket, right? It's going to be at a point where, um, you know, uh, the, the business leaders uh, and your customers' companies are going to start like, okay, well, you're consuming tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to kind of train these particular models. Are we actually seeing the ROI Mm -hmm. on this investment or not? Right. Um, If if your developers are conscious about how they are training their models, what softwares and frameworks they're using, it will give them the ability to kind of try out alternative architectures, such as Tranium maybe, or maybe something else uh, in the future, right? and and enable them to either get to market quickly uh, or potentially save, you know, 40, 50% of the operational costs, right? Which can be substantial, um, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to like training these LLMs, right? So um, it is super, super important uh, for uh, for customers to be cognizant about how they're building their applications because you know, what, what we're seeing in the market right now is that, you know, there are certain set sort of customers that are writing code directly to a vendor's API, right? So they're like, okay, I'm going to pick a vendor A, and I'm going to use their software libraries, and my code is going to have a dependency on that particular software library, right? So they're, for the most part, they have a direct coupling to vendor A in this example, right? The, the alternative that we're seeing also is that where customers are using levels of abstraction, but they're like, oh, okay, you know what? I don't want to have a direct tie-in with the vendor's library, so I'm going to use an open source platform that's going to give me a level of abstraction. So what I'm referring to is common machine learning frameworks like PyTorch uh, and JAX, where if you're leveraging these frameworks to actually build and train and eventually deploy your models you're gonna have that flexibility where you know down the road if there's a vendor b that is providing a different hardware platform that is more um you know uh you know more aligned with what you're looking for from an economics or performance standpoint you will have the ability to kind of try the vendor b uh, and and see how well it works for your business right and alternatively you'll have the ability to kind of move back also right so so developers need to be super conscious about how they're building their applications, what platforms they're leveraging, and and uh, what ability will they have to actually try out uh, different different silicon uh, from different providers um, in order to either you know optimize the time to market or optimize their costs, right? Um, so th- that's the most fundamental thing. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of detail also around. The specific feature and capability that a particular part might provide, right? So, like, um, if you are um, if you're optimizing inference performance, as an example, right? There are a whole bunch of like techniques uh, that are available at the hardware level to to optimize the inference performance. Same thing on the training side, right? So, so being aware of like what hardware platform you're leveraging. Um, you know, will will also enable for you to enable you to kind of micro optimize the performance and eke out the the most performance out of that platform, right?
0: Yeah, you're definitely speaking my language, uh, especially talking about the concerns of like time to market and velocity and abstraction. Which more and more we're seeing yeah. we're seeing the developer tools and the the different um, ways they interact with the world like being kind of mediated by abstractions, like kind of more and more. So we've spoken a bit about why software developers should care about hardware. How is AWS making it easier for software developers to think about hardware, and where and how does abstraction come into play?
1: Yeah. So this, uh you know there, there there are a couple of elements here, right? So one um, one is around the AI ML space. Uh, so when it comes to training and inference, specifically, um, we have put in a lot of effort. In, um, in taking our compiler, which is called Neuron, and plugging that under common machine learning frameworks, right? So, again, going back to our earlier conversation, where we want to make it easy for developers to kind of try out train them in but at the same time, have the ability to kind of move to a different architectural platform if it suits their needs better, right? So, so, we had a we had a very uh, strong focus on taking our IP and plugging plugging it under open source frameworks, right? And and helping customers leverage those open source frameworks enables them to actually, you know, have that level of abstraction, right? So, uh, so that's one key thing, uh, you know. Uh, there's a similar uh, concept on the on the on the Nitro side, mm-hmm. uh, and I I know you guys got to see some of our Nitro cards also. So Nitro, for the most part, is actually uh, fully transparent to our customers. Like our customers, in many cases, don't directly leverage Nitro. Like it's a it's a behind the scenes technology that provides a lot of value, right? Um, and uh, and that enables our customers to kind of maximize how much hardware they're able to use, and essentially the value they're able to get out of AWS, right? So, so there are different ways for us to enable our customers to uh, leverage the capabilities we have on the hardware side. On the Nitro side, it's transparent uh, for the most part. And then specifically on the training and infer- inferential side, um, it's by enabling our customers to use open-zones frameworks uh, instead of directly uh, building on top of our compiler technology, right?
0: And I really like that introduction of uh, of Nitro into the this story because uh, uh, everyone, yeah. again everyone's like uh, AI about everything, um, but Anapurna Labs, it the first chip that that uh, kind of came out of there was Nitro, correct?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so uh, our journey with building silicon for AWS started with Nitro, mm-hmm. right? And it goes back to like 2015, 2016, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, and the way we uh, the way we virtualize our hardware um, is at this current point in time 100% managed by Nitro so let me rewind a bit right so so prior to Nitro and prior to us building our own silicon um, on the hypervisor side and how we managed uh, to enable customers to run on slices of servers, a lot of that management was actually running on the same server itself, right? So uh, that's typically how hypervisors work, where you would take out like 15, 20% of the compute resources on the server itself and allocate it for management purposes. And then you have the remaining part of the compute available for you to run customer workloads, right? So. So Nitro as a core capability enabled us to like offload a lot of the management capabilities and almost all of it, and run it on a de- dedicated card. Um, and uh, that's where we started building our own chips. There wasn't an uh, off-the-shelf um, accelerator that was available for us to run our own management stack. And that's where we started building uh, our own Nitro chips, our own offload cards, and plugging them into um, our, our servers, right? so. Yeah, so, so Nitro has actually laid the foundation um, when it comes to like building expertise around silicon. Uh, we built on it to launch our Gaviton CPUs, you know, about four years back, right? And that was super exciting because again, that was the first time in the industry a cloud provider had built a CPU from the ground up uh, and brought it to market, right? And then we built on that capability of being able to kind of build high-performance CPUs start building accelerators for AIML, hence uh, training and Inferentia uh, were kind of born. And and now we are on uh, our third architecture for training and Inferentia. So it's been a fascinating ride.
0: Yeah, and, uh, fascinating for me, for me as well. Um, so thank you so much for taking time to, to chat with me today. Are there any last thoughts that you want to leave folks with?
1: No, I think uh, it's super exciting chatting with you. And, uh, you know, uh, we spent a bunch of time talking about, you know, silicon, which is a core part of what sets AWS apart. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you look at everything else, we have to operate on a portfolio from storage products, uh, your networking products, and um, and all the all the high-level managed services. You know, we think we have a... Uh, you know, really compelling portfolio for for developers to kind of build their uh, Gen AI applications. And, and Silicon and hardware is gonna underpower all of this, right? So again, uh, there, there's a lot of stuff we're working on and we're looking forward to sharing some of these details uh, in the coming months uh, with, with, with you guys and obviously with your customers and, and your developers. Right?
0: So. Well, we're looking forward to hearing those stories. Thank you again.
1: All right, thanks for the time.